Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we look at climate change, mothballs and the origin of life itself, and gene therapy cures blindness. But first up, here's the news with Dean Proctor. A new company called 23andMe can help people discover what lies within their genes. The company was founded by Anne Wojcicki. Anne wanted to provide the service of genetic screening for anyone willing to pay the price. In fact, you too can have your genes screened for only $399. US The company raises a few controversial points. Most notably, it gives people a snapshot into what the future has in store for them. Cancer, multiple sclerosis... Parkinson's. In fact, Anne's husband, Sergey, one of the co-founders of Google, jumped at the opportunity to look into the crystal ball. Sergey's mother actually has Parkinson's disease, and as it turns out, after genetic screening, Sergey found that he has a 20 to 80 percent, which is a bit vague, of developing Parkinson's himself. Sergey is actually the 13th richest American with a combined wealth of $16 billion. It will be interesting to see what he will do in light of this information. Sergey wrote in his blog, I know early in my life something I am substantially predisposed to. I now have the opportunity to adjust my life to reduce those odds. I also have the opportunity to perform and support research into this disease long before it may actually affect me. Mothballs and the Origin of Life Naphthalene, the primary active ingredient in mothballs, has been identified in the Perseus constellation around 700 light-years from Earth. In the reactive interstellar medium containing UV light and chemical such as water, naphthalene could react to produce amino acids and naphthoquinolones, which are important precursors to biological molecules such as proteins. This is similar to an experiment performed in the 1950s, which showed that you can create the building blocks of life from the gases and other chemicals of Earth in its infancy. This was able to fill in the blanks between the Big Bang and the primordial soup, essentially unveiling the origins of life. These new results suggest that these chemicals were present before our solar system even existed. And there weren't any moths. LHC Meltdown an incident on September 19th has resulted in the Large Hadron Collider shutting down until early 2009. The LHC's aim is to smash particles together at huge speeds and hopefully solve some of the fundamental mysteries of particle physics. The LHC uses giant supercooled magnets to propel the particles at close to the speed of light along a 27-kilometre long tunnel. The shutdown was provoked when one of the magnets began to leak helium. The helium is used to keep the magnets at temperatures more frigid than deep space. If the helium leaks out, the magnets begin to warm up. And if the magnets warm up, the beams of particles can ricochet out of control and cause enormous amounts of damage. Scientists at CERN would rather be safe than sorry. They have decided to shut down the machine for now so they can go inside to see what went wrong. Hopefully, come next year 
the LHC will be functioning once again, giving theorists answers to some of physics' more tantalising mysteries. A clinical trial of gene therapy for Leber's congenital amaurosis, which is a rare and currently incurable form of congenital blindness, has restored sight to two participants. The trial is still in its early stages. In fact, it was only meant to test the therapy's safety rather than its efficacy. But early results were so dazzling that the researchers at the University of Pennsylvania decided to publicize their results. One of the patients treated said that light from his alarm clock had become too bright for him to sleep and he had to turn it away for him whilst he was sleeping. This is amazing considering that until now no treatment exists for Libra's amaurosis. In their study, patients were exposed to a virus which introduced a healthy version of the RPE65 gene, which is defective in people with the disease. Patients reported that their sight began to improve after just one week of this treatment. Human cloning in Sydney. In late 2006, the Australian federal government conducted a conscience vote on human cloning. Despite the various opinions about human cloning and embryonic stem cells, cloning was made legal in Australia. A local in vitro fertilisation clinic, Sydney IVF, was recently given permission to clone human embryos in an attempt to produce embryonic stem cells. The genetic material, possibly from adult skin cells, could be transferred to unfertilised eggs. That is, humans are actually being cloned. In fact, the unfertilized eggs are some of 7,000 eggs otherwise discarded by this clinic. All of this is in an effort to produce embryonic stem cells from these cloned embryos. They tell us that these stem cells can be used for personalized drug screening and personalized biological therapeutics. The question still remains, is this necessary? A subject that remains to be controversial, especially due to other methods of developing stem cells, such as using viruses to deliver genes. Peter Ralph is Executive Director of the Climate Change Cluster. We spoke earlier about making climate change and ecosystem models, looking from coral bleaching in tropical reefs to algal ecosystems in Antarctica. My name's Peter Ralph. I am the Executive Director of the Climate Change Cluster. This is a new research initiative at UTS that is looking at understanding how biological models can improve the prediction of climate change at a regional scale. So you're looking at something called eddy covariance in your global modelling. Yes, eddy covariance is, is a very powerful tool at looking at very small changes in wind direction and the carbon dioxide, and we're also now applying it to underwater applications. So when a air parcel or a parcel of water moves, it has a direction, and we're measuring the amount of gases that are in those parcels of air and water, and the net sum of carbon dioxide going up or down will define whether or not that habitat that you're measuring has put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere or taken it out of the atmosphere. So that these parcels of air that are sort of a little bit separated from the surrounding air and my understanding is that the hemispheres don't always mix everything as well. Oh yeah, at that scale. We're working at a much smaller scale. We're working at the scale of a, a large forest or a, a river or an estuary. So 
our measurements are very, very fast and very, very small scale. They're called micro meteorological changes. They're not the macro meteorological changes. So what do you measure them with? We measure them with what's called an acoustic coupled velocimeter. So it's a device that measures the movement of mass in front of it in three dimensions. And then we sample the carbon dioxide or the oxygen at a very high speed, up to 25 times a second. We have to do velocity measurements, direction measurements and gas measurements. So you're actually looking at the composition of the air to find out how much carbon dioxide and how much of other things are in the air. Yes. And you're also working in Antarctica? Yes. Well, the whole of the the research facility that we have in the Department of Environmental Sciences, there's a number of us working in climate change. And the aspects of climate change range from the tropical reefs looking at coral bleaching all the way through to the polar regions looking at the impact of climate change on Antarctic sea ice. Antarctic sea ice is critical to the survival of the Southern Ocean ecosystems. The ice, which there's 20 million square kilometres each year, has algae that grows on the bottom of it. That algae supports the entire ecosystem down there. As climate change causes less production of ice and changes the temperature and the amount of light going through the ice, we're getting changes in the amount of algae, which then knocks on to the krill. The krill are fed by, that support the, the penguins and the seals and the, the whales. So you change the ice, you change the whole ecosystem. And that's what we're looking at. And so in the tropical end, you've got the corals. And so when the corals get too hot, they lose all the things that make them colourful. Yes, yes, they bleach. When you get an increase in temperature of about one degree, a coral is a symbiosis of an animal and a plant. So you have a tiny algal cell encased in an animal uh, cell. And when the symbiosis is happy, you have light coming into the algae, it photosynthesizes and gives sugar to, to the animal. If the temperature is too high, the photosynthesis is altered And what we're finding is that the algae is expelled. But a lot of work that we've been doing for the last 10 years is now showing that the biochemistry of why the photosystems break down is quite a complex and not immediately apparent explanation. Uh, It's not, you can't just look at higher plants or other microalgae and say, well, you increase temperature. Those photosynthesis processes seem to survive very well. But when they're in an animal and you increase it by one degree, it's the interaction between the animal and the plant that breaks down. It's not necessarily the photosynthesis itself because it's quite a robust biochemical process. Right. So maybe it's some sort of communications. Yes. Yes. Signaling. The way that the animal exchanges nutrients and allows gases to move in and out of the, the plant is more than likely part of the reason. And we're looking at whether or not genetic uh, causes or genetic traits are linked to these bleaching responses, whether or not it's the thickness of the animal tissue, uh, the, the pigments in the animal tissue. There's a whole range of things that the animal does to make the algae live in a very comfortable environment. And when that breaks down, the whole of the symbiosis breaks down and the coral bleaches and that's when it loses its algae. It's got about a month 
before it will starve if it doesn't have algae in its tissues. So it's got a very short window that it needs to regrow its algae or get lots of plankton in the water and feed on that. We've recently done some very interesting work where we fed the corals quite a lot of brine, brine shrimp, uh, little sea monkeys. Yes. Uh, We fed them with those and the corals didn't bleach. So Uh if you feed the coral well and keep it very healthy, the photosynthesis is not affected. Whereas when you have them with less algae to eat or zooplankton to eat, they rely on the internal algae to provide all the sugars, and that's not enough. So we're quite excited to find out more about this and get this published quite soon. So it looks like there's not really enough species of little animals for it to feed on. The thing is, it's interesting, coral reefs are marine deserts. That's why they grow where they grow. There's very little food in the water and the reason why a coral survives so well is because it recycles all the food. It's a very, very tightly controlled um, exchange between animals and plants, even between fish on the reef. They eat the corals, they eat some of the algae, but their waste is recycled within the reef. So you don't see a lot of nutrients leaving the reef. And so it's really important to keep all of the nutrients there. And if the corals are well fed, then they seem to be able to survive bleaching better than if they're not well fed. So maybe there's something we could do to help the corals. We hope that people don't make that assumption because we don't want people going out and enriching the oceans to put lots more food for the phytoplankton which makes more food for the zooplankton which by our result would mean that the corals would do better. We don't think that would be a good outcome because all we'd create would be a pea green soup and the reef would die. So we have to keep a very, very delicate balance in the amount of food and how it's recycled, the best solution we should do is to reduce our carbon emissions and reduce the elevated temperature of the ocean. That would be a much better outcome than trying to continue polluting with carbon and trying to put a Band-Aid on the system by giving the coral more food to eat. So definitely the best outcome would be a reduction in carbon from my perspective. As well as all the carbon dioxide pollution causing all the global warming, you're also able to look at other forms of pollution. Yes, yes. The lab works in all areas of marine plants, and marine plants, because they generally grow in shallow water, people like to live near shallow water areas. They have their boats, and we transport a lot of resources in in shallow water areas. We happen to have lots of oil spills, and we pollute the coastal area with heavy metals. Uh, herbicides, we spray herbicides on all of our gardens. When it rains, the herbicides don't just stay in our gardens, they go into the, the estuaries and the creeks and they wash in and they ultimately kill the seagrasses, the macroalgae, the, the mangroves. So we've been working on understanding what amount of contaminant or pollution these systems can tolerate. We're doing some work at the moment with oil pollution. When there's an oil spill, you have to make a decision very, very quickly. Are we going to let the oil, because the oil floats, when there's waves and current, it's going to wash the oil onto the edge of the estuary, the intertidal area. 
Now, the decision is, do you spray chemicals on that oil that causes the oil to break up and sink? That stops it going into the mangroves, onto the rocky platforms, killing all of the, the mussels, the oysters, the crabs. That's a good decision. But if you spray the dispersants on the oil and the oil sinks, most times what's underneath is the seagrasses. Now, the seagrasses is where all of the juvenile fish that are the nurseries for all of our coastal fisheries. So if you kill your seagrasses with an oil spill, you're going to have impacts on your coastal fisheries. So it's a very, very important decision to make. Do you stop the oil going ashore or do you just let it disperse itself naturally? And, and our research is giving managers a better idea on how to make that decision. How much risk how much can a seagrass meadow take? How much oil can we allow to go in there? And oil is a natural byproduct and it does degrade pretty quickly. So I think we're going to be able to help a lot of the decision makers make the right decision so that we can protect the greatest amount of the habitats in the estuaries. There's a lot of very, very interesting research going on at UTS and I think the, the recent investment by the university in climate change research is going to yield some phenomenally interesting and important outcomes. We're going to be employing and bringing to UTS some of the world leaders in understanding these climate change models and the biological complexity. So it's going to be a very interesting space to watch, and I think over the next six months to a year, we will have some phenomenal stories to tell the world about. So I think the take-home message is keep an eye on us. We'll be back to tell more stories very, very soon. Peter Ralph, thank you very much. That was Peter Ralph, Executive Director of the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Not long ago, in a galaxy not far away, Patrick Ruby pondered a deep question that affects us all. So which is your favourite Star Wars robot, C-3PO or R2-D2? Most of us will remember R2-D2 as the cute blue and grey trash can, which communicated with a series of beeps and whistles that only the other on-screen characters could understand. An odd little fellow, but by no means the oddest character in the sci-fi saga. Without a doubt, the coolest thing for me about R2 was all the gadgets he used to get his friends out of trouble. He was a functional robot and had to repair ships and open doors for his human companions. What about C-3PO? I have to say that I thought he was a bit annoying myself, but he was quite a different robot from R2. He spoke English. He looked more like a human. He had eyes, a head, a neck, a body, arms and legs. He could walk, even though it looked noticeably awkward most of the time. His main job was to communicate with humans and other robots. Now let's come back to our world and have a look at the robots we've got at home. Most of our present-day robots are like R2-D2. They are designed purely to assist us and not to look like us. An example of this is the Da Vinci surgical system robot used in some surgical procedures. It is composed of four arms attached to a cart, one to hold a camera, and three to hold surgical instruments. 
It also has a 3D vision system and a console for the surgeon to control the arms with. It is used for removing prostate cancers and to repair kidneys and bladders. It does not drive a sports car, nor does it chat to the other surgeons about golf or sailing. But it is very good at its job. It is less invasive than human surgeons, and patients often don't spend as much time in hospital recovering after surgery if it's used. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital recently bought one for $3.5 million, which should be operational early next year, making it the first hospital in Australia to have one so far. But what if you want your own functional friend, perhaps one you can use at home? Physorg.com has been featuring a number of robot specials on their website. One robot mentioned is called the Quirl. The Quirl was designed by the Fraunhofer Institute for Manufacturing, Engineering and Automation, IPA, in Stuttgart, Germany. It weighs 600 grams, is the size of a postcard, and is used to clean windows. Or perhaps you can choose from the multitude of robots designed to assist physically disabled people to find and fetch objects in their own homes. These include the Cuca and James the Butler. And if you want something more human... The European Robotics Network, or EURON, has been working on that. They designed iDroid, a humanoid robot which was given to consumers piece by piece if they subscribed to a 72-issue magazine. The subscribers then built the robot themselves. It was hugely popular in Japan, but Europeans are apparently not as thrilled by the idea of a human-like robot. Other sapien-esque specials include Remay, a human-sized robot with arms and legs that can walk, hold simple objects, and play chess, and Maggie, designed by the University Carlos III in Madrid, Spain. It looks like a cartoon frog and can talk and recognise speech. It can also recognise some gestures and touch through a touchscreen interface on its chest. It is believed that robots which can communicate and interact in these ways could become like pets or companions for young children or the elderly in the future. However, it is not an easy undertaking to get it right. Firstly, current robots aren't capable of interacting on a social level as well as humans. Social intelligence is difficult to program into robots because they are unable to learn and develop skills subconsciously to the same degree that we can. Secondly, we might not like it if they do. Some of us are very uncomfortable with the idea of talking and thinking robots and don't really know what most of our real-life robots look like. In this respect, Hollywood could help. Roboticist Bill Smart and other researchers from Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, the US, are looking at designing future robots based on popular science fiction characters such as WALL-E from the film Pixar. It's to try and foster a better relationship between real robots and humans so that we understand them better and are not freaked out as much by them. Some analysts have predicted that there could be a robot in every home by the year 2025, making them more popular than PCs. But what type of robots will we have by then? Will they be the functional gadgets on wheels, like R2-D2, 
or the talkative humanoid C-3PO's. I asked our Diffusion panel what they thought about it. What do we think of robots? Do we tend more towards the C-3PO's? Do we want that interaction? Or do we prefer the R2-D2's? Do we want something that's functional and not too human-like? Any ideas? Me personally, I would say I would go more to the R2-D2's. Not just because R2-D2 is the coolest robot on the planet, which is true, um, but because I think robots should be more of a functional aid for us. I don't think we necessarily need that social interaction with a machine. I reckon we'd be robbing ourselves if we were interacting more with a machine than with each other in a social sense. I actually recently, for my mother's birthday, bought her a robotic vacuum cleaner that traverses the entire house and like doesn't fall downstairs, and that's more of an R2-D2 type system that I want to see in the future. I yeah. think you, you hit the nail right on the head when you said that they were just kind of disquieting the human-like robots i just i saw there was a new robot created with eyebrows that could mimic facial expressions and there's just something that doesn't sit right about those robots i'm not sure why well it's one of those things like human-like robots are very big in japan robots are huge in japan in culture and popular culture and they've got very realistic looking robots they've got receptionists that you would almost think were human if you didn't look too closely. And it turns out that as you get really close, there's a certain level, and you get it in animation as well, where where it gets very realistic but not quite realistic enough, it suddenly looks very, very wrong. The panel suggests R2-D2-1, C-3PO, 0. So who do you prefer? Email your answer to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you've got feedback, comments, suggestions, you'd like to let us know you exist, or if you'd like to join the show, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Dean Proctor, Patrick Ruby, and Victoria Bond. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and panelled by Victoria Bond. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm your producer, Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, he's Black Gold by Sam Church Jr. America, take warning There's something you should know There would be no three-mile island If we were burning coal They don't think of radiation Where do we put the waste? Can't you see the danger This power does create? One smallest accident And we must evacuate 
But it was God's intention That gold should be our fate The DOE and the government Have to take a stand Black gold is the answer It's there upon demand They gave us nuclear power It's supposed to cut the cost But the government supports it And billions more are lost Mr. Energy's are take warning Your time is running out Don't use this awesome power Take away this fear and doubt Even the smallest accident And we must evacuate But it was God's intention That gold should be our fate The DOE and the government Have to take a stand Black gold is the answer It's there upon demand America, take warning There's something you should know There would be no three-mile island If we were burned